This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, there is so much to talk about, and we just don't have enough time today. A lot of really great stories. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about how Qatar is doing in the face of international I wouldn't say criticism, but international comments about how this first Arab country to host the World Cup is doing. And we're going to kind of review all of that and uh, kind of get a pulse on how Qatar is doing under these circumstances. And frankly, a very sad story that we're going to cover next. Um, and this is the sad, sad story about how Israeli journalists are not being welcomed with love and affection by by people in Qatar and Doha right now. I mean, it seems like the Israeli journalists and Israeli tourists who are visiting uh, Doha right now for the World Cup are kind of perplexed and surprised as to not why they're not being loved and embraced with open arms. We'll talk a little bit about that because there have been a lot of uh, Palestinian flags that have been popping up all over Doha uh, at the World Cup. And we'll we'll talk a little bit about why Israeli journalists should not be surprised. But before we get to that, Jamal, we're going to watch a really great interview you did with uh, Israeli investigative journalist David Sheen, who's going to talk about the rise and the return, basically, of the Kahanist movement, this extremist right-wing terrorist movement that is uh, back I'm not sure it ever went away, but it's being, uh, it's re-energizing itself uh, in Israeli politics and society. So really great interview. That's right, Jess. Not only they are back, but they are going to be back back in the government. So they, it's not just, uh, they're being embraced, basically, and, and, and normalized. Yep. And then we'll talk about also the reaction from uh, the, afterwards from the United States. But first, Let's uh, watch David Sheen. On November 1st, Israel held its fifth round of elections in five years. Although Benjamin Netanyahu remains awash in corruption charges that have made him a pariah to many within his usual nationalist Likud base, he has managed to prevail by forming a coalition with ultra-extreme right political factions. The most conspicuous of these is Itmar Ben-Gvir, slated to be Israel's next Minister of National Security. A follower of, late, of the late extremist Meir Kahana, Ben Gvir's party Jewish Power plans to ensure a Jewish majority with, and I'm quoting here, immigration, transfer of the enemy, and exchange of populations, and any other way that will help the enemy leave our country. The enemy referred to are the indigenous Palestinians. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is David Sheen to discuss the increasing political legitimacy of Israel's extreme right and what it signifies for the future. David is an investigative journalist based in Haifa who has covered issues on Palestine and Israel since 2010. His focus is largely on racial tensions and religious extremism within Israeli society, 
but also includes women's and LGBTQ issues, among others. His reporting has been featured in regional and international outlets, including the European parliaments, as well as colleges across the United States. Welcome to Arab Talk, David. Thank you for having me. First, let me thank you for your excellent reporting and simplifying Israel's mm. political tangles into clear, identifiable trends. Really appreciate that. Let's begin with the basics, just to give our listeners, uh, maybe should give them a breakdown mm. on Israeli parliament mm. and who is required to become Israel's prime minister. And, and how is it possible that Israel is holding its fifth election in five years? Mm-hmm. Good questions, all of them. Okay, well, let's start off with just a basic understanding. As you pointed out, to become prime minister of Israel, it's not enough to be the leader of the largest party because no party has had a majority ever in Israel's history, never had 51% of the seats in parliament. So it's always been a coalition. And throughout Israel's history, those coalitions have always looked like this. The largest segment of Israeli society 60% approximately, what we call secular nationalists, those who would support a one-state solution, of apartheid solution, where one and one-state ethnocracy, where Jews have more rights than non-Jews. Then there's also the, the second largest camp with about 20% of the votes of the, you know, of the electorate. And that's what we'd call the theocratic camp, uh, the religious parties who traditionally uh, have uh, not only do they like to see there to be a one state from the river to the sea, but of apartheid, they would also like that river to the sea state to be actually ethnically cleansed of non-Jews. But being as traditionally they, you know, have Jews have lived in it as a minority, so they said, you know, that is for the messianic era. We just, you know, follow our rules and regulations, whatever it says in the Torah and the Talmud, and. But yes, our our vision ultimately is for an ethnically cleansed state, but you know, that's not for us to bring into being, that's for Yahweh. But now we see kind of a bastard child of these two camps, the, the largest camp in Israel, the, the the secular nationalists, and the second largest camp that has always been a partnership between the two running the country. But now we have almost the bastard child of these. We can call it the monarchist camp. So not the religious, they also want the country to be ethnically cleansed. But unlike the religious, they're not waiting for some messianic era. Like the nationalists, they believe that it's for them to you know, create the facts on the ground and bring the world they want to see into being. So these people, as you've, you've said, the, the Kahana party, the followers of Mayor Kahana are at the vanguard of this monarchist or messianist movement. And just to understand how they are differentiated from these other camps, this, this new camp that has surged and all of a sudden become the kingmakers of Israeli politics, being the second largest party in Benjamin Netanyahu's new government. So this Kahanist camp, the way that they're different is they don't just say, oh, well, you know, we need to kill Arabs and Palestinians because what to do is just part of being the lords of the land and occasionally we'll have to put down seditions. No, what makes the Kahanists separate is they actually believe it's a mitzvah. They believe it's like a way of consecrating God to kill their, to kill Palestinians. And other than that, they also, you know, they want to establish a theocracy, you know, very strict rules of religious Jude, Orthodox Judaism. They also want to establish a monarchy. They want to 
demolished the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the whole Al-Aqsa compound, the Dome of the Rock, all the beautiful buildings on the Holy Esplanade in the center of the old city of Jerusalem, and demolish it and build a temple slash abattoir on top of it, a Jewish temple where they will slaughter on Jewish holidays more than 10,000 animals a day. And that, that for that to be the focus of this new monarchy theocracy. And they want that monarchy theocracy not only to exist within the territories that Israel now controls, you know, all of mandatory Palestine, all of historic Palestine, but they also want it to expand for Jewish armies to go forth and expand the empire and to conquer the nations around it, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, Turkey. It, I, I've heard some people speak even as far as South America. Uh, it's wow. not a joke. They really believe in this, in bringing about a Jewish empire because that's their belief. They, they, they are Jewish monarchists. They believe that they themselves are, you know, uh, uh, a high race, you know, special I mean, people. I mean, somebody like here, when you mentioned Jewish monarchists, it's kind of like bring, mm -hmm. brings us like, uh, I don't know to what age, but I heard <laughs> you uh, actually speaking about this and, uh, and you mentioned to understand mm -hmm. political ideology in Israel, one had to start with how each view, each party mm -hmm. views the Torah. Can mm -hmm. you el elaborate on this? Sure. It's one of the ways that I've suggested that it helps us to understand not just the Israeli political map, but also we could speak of Jewish politics. First of all, let's just say this only really can begin from the French Revolution, because before that, if Jews are uh, don't have citizenship in the countries that they live and they don't have rights, then their only safety comes from their leadership, whether it's in this case, rabbinic leadership. So, But as soon as you have Jewish people becoming citizens of the states in which they live, um, that process leads to an explosion of Jewish political thought in every direction. So Jewish capitalists, Jewish socialists. Jewish... So how do we understand? One of the ways that we can understand these is we can ask the question, how do these different groups of Jews relate to Israel's or the Jewish people's sacred texts, the Torah, right, and the Talmud? So we, so we would ask the question, is the Torah holy and is the Torah just? So let's say when we ask that of the, the theocratic camp, you know, they would say, you know, the traditionally what we would see as Orthodox Jews, they would say, yes, the Torah is holy. It was written by God. And yes, uh, it's just when it says that we are God's chosen people in this land, especially for us. Okay. That's easy to understand. Then. There's, you know, from that point, we have a new camp, a liberal camp, a reformist camp, you know, and they would say yes and no. They say, yes, the Torah is holy. These are sacred texts, you know, the, the tradition is holy to us. But no, it's not just, it's not right the way it is. We need to correct it and amend it and and uh, bring it in line with our moral, with our, with our modern morals. And so that would be the liberal camp in Jewish society. And then we have the nationalist camp of the, you know, and they're, you know, traditionally what we would call Zionists. And they would say the opposite. They wouldn't say yes, no, they'd say no, yes. So they would say of the Torah, no, it's not holy. Of course not. It's written by people, not by God. And it was edited by other people in different periods of time. And those people, you know, wrote this book and this is it. It's our literature, just as Shakespeare is the literature of the British people. So this is our, you know, cultural literature, but it's not 
holy but is it just when it says that this land you know that we are special you know this land belongs to us yes that it's fair this is our contract of ownership so of course summarizing that uh hypocritical position of the nationalists no there is no god but yes god gave us this land so in any case and of course then there's also the camp the jewish socialist camp which 100 years ago was the largest of those camps at least in the united states where you're living and that uh, their answers were no and no. no no these are not holy texts they're just written by our ancestors by humans they have uh, you know failings like every one of us and no it's not just when it says you know the land does not belong to anyone more than to you know belong to one people more than anyone else and if anything we belong to it not it to us and uh, in any case so that's the, that's the the Jewish socialist camp so as I said we you know just like every society we've got uh, a, a uh, spectrum of political opinions in the Jewish, you know, Jewish. Uh, I want to go back would, to yeah, what you saying. designate uh, as the mm. ultra right, uh, or, or you designate mm. the ultra right as monarchists, or you mm. know, a fifth camp, mm. and note uh, that they combine the worst characteristics of the <laughs> supremacists mm -hmm. and apportionists camps. Mm -hmm. That's can you explain how yeah. much how much worse uh, <laughs> things can get? Right. Well, I mean, I, I kind of unloaded all, all the barrels, but it can get very, very sickening. These people have, in recent decades, made every effort to get their hands on the wheels of power. And I'll explain how they did this. And because don't forget the first time that this monarchist camp really made it onto the scene in Israeli politics. Sure, it was, you know, it burst into the consciousness of Jewish Israelis after the Six-Day War, because then Israel was so successful militarily that all of a sudden people, you know, Jewish nationalists and Jewish religious people start thinking, oh my God, maybe this is the Messianic times. Maybe we really can do everything we want and not have to, you know, think about what anyone else will say. So that's when it kind of, you know, explodes in people's minds, but it only becomes a political force in the mid-1980s at that point, the founding father of Kahanism, Rabbi Meir Kahana, American-born rabbi who moved to Israel, he enters the Knesset after many years. And you know, at that point, he gets enough support from the populace. At that point, you only needed one percent of the population of the popular vote to get in, and he gets it, and he gets into Knesset just with the one seat. But you know, immediately, what, what the way he changed Israeli society, what the, the taboo that he broke was by openly inciting ethnic cleansing. He openly said, this is my platform to ethnically cleanse. Of course, there were Zionist leaders who not only, you know, uh, thought it, spoke about it, wrote about it, but practiced it, you know, in the in the Nakba and, and at other points in Israeli history. But the, here was a, the first politician who was running a campaign on the basis of it, of like actually trying to elicit votes on the basis for, if you vote for me, I will commit ethnic cleansing, you know. So, that's what the the change the, the, that out and out racism the unabashed racism that was the change that that he brought to the Israeli scene and because it was so you know outspokenly racist it even triggered the nationalist camp at that time the and at that point remember this isn't the labor nationalists this is the Likud nationalists so the right wing nationalists even for them at that time in the mid nineteen eighties even for them it was. Uh, to uh, you know, step too far, too just too racist for their palate, and so they actually work together to uh, you know the the nationalists and you know work together uh, to 
make it illegal for Kahana to run again, to make it uh, you know, a requirement that you not espouse outright racism if you want to be a candidate for Knesset. So Kahana was not in the Knesset after one round, and he was assassinated in, in a couple of years after he left the Knesset. And for many years, his supporters never managed to make it back into the Knesset. But that changed in recent years. And the main reasons that it changed, I can list several, but one of the main reasons is Israeli society has shifted massively more and more to the right. I mean, it was always nationalist, as I explained, all Israeli governments have been nationalist, but um, since the you know since the second intifada certainly israeli society has been moving further and further and further to the right at that same time when the kahanists were booted out of the knesset when khan himself was restricted from re-entering it put them on a pro the kahana movement on a process of okay well how do we get back into the knesset if we were prevented from reaching power by the largest nationalist party by the likud party if they prevent so the only way that we're going to be able to get back in is with the help of the, we need to change the Likud from the inside. And so they, they, that was their target and they set out to do that. And they did that. They did that starting in the right, you know, at the beginning of the second intifada, what's called the Jewish leadership movement, which was a group of Kahanists who basically started a faction within Israel's ruling Likud party. And at, at the beginning, you know, at first they were just a small faction, but they grew and grew in power and influence. And eventually, even people who weren't part of their faction started, you know, trying to be in their favor. So now to the point where, like, you actually have several Khanists serving in the ruling Likud party and no one even thinks twice about it. It's now, there's a lot of fusion. I mean, first of all, their funders are the same. The person who funds the, you know, the biggest funder of Benjamin Netanyahu is also the biggest funder of the Kahanist movement, including its terrorist wings. So who's, who's, we now have, really have a fusion between Who's that funder? Are you talking about the Adelson to, family? Or? No, I'm talking about the Fallick family. They are the owners of Duty Free America. And for quite a few years now, they have been the biggest funders of both Benjamin Netanyahu and the Lehava movement and the wider Kahana movement here in, in Palestine. So, of course, but that's actually not uh, a new thing. For some decades now, there have been several uh american zionists who have been funding simultaneously both benjamin netanyahu's political rise to power and kahana movement projects like a terrorist koanim and other projects to dispossess palestinian people in jerusalem and hebron and such so that's basically what we have now we we have uh, a situation where Israeli society has shifted to the right. Meanwhile, the Kahanists have cannibalized the Likud from within. Now, Kahanism is acceptable when, as you pointed out, Netanyahu is on the ropes, starting to lose his grip on power. He realized that to get over the top, the only way he could do that is with a group of society, let's say, that hasn't up until now been represented in the polls because the Kahanists, as I pointed out, um, you know, started out with only 1%. That was all Kah uh, Mayor Kahana was able to get back when he ran in the 1980s. And over the years, to keep Palestinian parties out of the Knesset, uh, nationalist legislatures actually, uh, le uh, legislators increased the, um, the, the limit or the prerequisite required to get into the Knesset. If in Kahana's day, it was only 1%, it was later doubled to two, and now it's almost four percent of the popular vote wow. that you need to get. Okay. Yeah. So, in order, they did that, of course, 
in order to try to prevent the Palestinian parties who waver at about that level of performance that they were hoping that they would not be able to reach that goal and then not be in the next Knesset. And in fact, that did happen in the case of Tajimua Balad party just now. But to the point, um, the Kahanists were never able to, you know, um, from the you know 90s, 2000s, 2010s, they were never able to get past that almost 4% in order to get into the Knesset on their own. Uh, and so what Netanyahu did was he brought them in alliance into coalition with other far-right forces and legitimized them, said, you know, it's okay, even though these are terrorists, this is a group that, you know, tw 25 years ago, we declared this group to be terrorists after they committed the worst, most heinous mass murder in Israel history and 29 Palestinians murdered at the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron in 1994. So we're going to rehabilitate these terrorists and now make a political alliance so that their votes will help me retake the prime minister's office or stay in the prime minister's office. So that was Netanyahu's game. But by legitimizing the Kahanists, now what has happened is that as, as a legitimate political force, once Israelis, racist Israelis realize that they're a legitimate political force, okay, so now we can vote for them. So now he's seeping, you know, sucking up votes from the other political parties who in, in recent years, Likud, is, Likud lawmakers have almost sounded indistinguishable from Kahanists. But, you know, the same thing that the Likud did all these years to labor and the other so-called centrist lawmakers who weren't racist enough. If you, people wanted more... If they wanted their racism or their nationalism, they would just go further to the right and further to the right. And so now that's what's happened. Again, there is now a further right alternative. And frankly, there's another further right alternative that's about to split up from the Kahanist party, if you can imagine that. The Kahanists aren't even radical enough. Uh, but in, in the meantime, they've now uh, managed to get from Prime Minister Netanyahu promises of, as he said, well, police how, ministry. How will he be able to uh, address or satisfy their promises? You you started talking about their long-term vision and mm -hmm. uh, the designs for expanding far beyond what mm -hmm. uh, are currently considered to be Israel's uh, borders. Borders, mm -hmm. And how is he going to satisfy them and at the same time satisfy his supporters uh, in in the West, for example, in the United States, who are now, frankly, uh, I noticed that they are embarrassed by by their inclusion. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think, you know, from here in Haifa, I, I don't see that any American government or any European government or any government for that matter has ever stepped in really and said, okay, now we're going to withhold our support because of this or that. I mean, it's been a very, this past year was, this is the so-called change government, the so-called alternative to Netanyahu. And it was the worst year in over a decade in terms of the amount of Palestinians killed. And so I, I don't uh, see any savior coming in from outside and somehow putting their foot down and saying enough is enough. That's our red line. And we won't, we'll, you know, we'll take it from here. No, 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 no. I don't see any stumbling block. I don't see any force uh, that can possibly countermand what we're looking at. Now, I, I don't know enough about the geopolitics outside the country to say if we're going to see excursions past the borders, but certainly within, uh, you know, mandatory, you know, Historic Palestine, I think that we're going to see it's going to be much, much, much worse because now the police forces are going to be explicitly controlled by the Kahanists. Don't forget, one year ago, 
just after the last of the previous election, the previous round of elections for the 24th Knesset. So at that point, just afterwards, basically, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the head of the Kahanist party, he essentially uh, incited what Israel's police chief called a Jewish intifada, or more people call race riots or anti-Palestinian pogroms across the country, you know, organizing groups of people to enter, you know, towns where, where historically Palestinian now have Jewish majorities, but still have significant Palestinian minorities, mixed communities, some of the rare ones where Jews and Arabs live side by side, and sending you know, far-right monarchists like himself to go to those areas and, you know, to increase the like and attack, bank, uh, frankly. Um, but without going into detail about that, the point is Israel's police chief called that a Jewish intifada and blamed Ben-Gvir for inciting it. Mm. Now Ben-Gvir is his boss. And if there was any question of what we've already seen them embracing and hugging in public and so there's no uh, suspicion that he's going to now quit in, you know, protest or something like that. He's perfectly accepted this new situation, which is that the these these arch racists now run the the, the roost. They run Israel's police forces. So that can only mean uh, things are going to get worse for Palestinians, and also for, of course, for Jews who support or are in solidarity with Palestinians. Um, so it's, it, I can't even begin to imagine, but I imagine that as soon as the government steps in and actually si signs the, you know, signs in, into power in a couple days or weeks, whenever it is, we're going to get a whiplash how far to the far right we're going to go, how quickly. People uh, like to think that these extremist uh, racist factions are uh, an anomaly, but they actually have increasing support throughout Israel, as, as, as you've mentioned. Talk about this notion of a good Israel and a bad Israel that keeps people in denial. Well, I mean, in denial, are we talking about uh, Americans? Are we talking about Israelis in denial? Who's who's in, who's denied? Or would you like me to open well, up? I, well, I, I think both. I think Israelis mm -hmm. and their supporters, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Well, it's difficult for me to speak too much to that since I'm not there. I'm not part of the discourse. You know, I'm just here on the ground, you know, looking at what happens. And frankly, when I come to other places like the United States and speak about my reporting, I, you know, it's incredibly depressing because it's obvious to the people I'm speaking to that they're all hearing this stuff for the first time, most of them. Like, even though I'm speaking to often seasoned veterans or seasoned activists or whatnot, they're often just like flabbergasted at the, thing, the things that I'm because okay, uh, admittedly, um, not everyone can read or speak Hebrew, but you know, even today in the modern age, we're only like a tweet away from getting to and and, and still, obviously, people are still shocked because there's a gate, there's gatekeeping, and so it's incredibly frustrating. I often you know, I have thought in the past that perhaps if people were, you know, had a uh, knew more about the facts, that would change people. But sometimes it's not facts that changes people's minds. I can, you know, obviously I didn't start out to, you know, I, I didn't start where I am today. I, you know, I myself moved politically from my childhood growing up as a Zionist Jew. So um, my point is that uh, it, I, I don't know what's going to ship people, but to me, it's frightening that as bad as things are getting. And then all along, people had said to me, David, you know, you're specializing in the Kahanists. Right now, that's a really niche, uh, you know, you're like, you're an expert on the Israeli far right. Um, but 
that who, who is that of interest to? These people will never come to power, you know. And then once I, these people started to come to power, people oh no, definitely uh, CNN is going to be at your door, you know, tomorrow. But of course, none of those things have happened. These, you know, the, the communists have now become the with their hands on the steering wheel. They are the second largest faction in the government. So, for all intents and purposes, they are the kingmakers of Israeli politics. And still, that no one's beating a you know a, down my a path to my door or anything like that. Uh, there's an incredible. And that's just about the Kahanas, but just in, in Israel, about Israel in general, there's a, a paucity of, uh, in, you know, experience. There's a paucity of knowledge about this, of what actually is going on in the ground. It's frightening. Well, that's why, that's why I'm talking about the denial. I've, I've uh, I had a conversation a few months ago with Miko Peled, and mm. this is the, the time when uh, those Kahanas were marching uh, at Damascus Gate in Jerusalem, mm. chanting "Death to Arabs" and mm. and so forth. Everybody saw that on TV. I assumed, but apparently not. And then mm. I was talking to him about, you know, we were mentioning the word extremist, and he got upset and he said, "No, these are not just the extremists. Don't call them extremists. I mean, this is to him Israeli society. I mean, this mm. is where." We arrived at this point. There is there is no distinction between the Kahanas mm -hmm. and maybe the average Israeli. I mm -hmm. mean, do you mm -hmm. share the the same point? Mm -hmm. Well, I've you... I've been to Jerusalem many times when these are going ongoing. I've filmed them multiple times. These death to the Arabs rallies or flat what they call Flag Day, which mm -hmm. we see as like you know people chanting genocide. I don't think of the flag. I think of the genocide chants. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But in terms of is this like a uh, uh, are these people extremists or are they a reflection of Israeli society? The people that I saw there are just, they're no different than the people that you meet in Israeli cities and towns across the country. Wow. They are pulled out from the regular, you know, society. And more to the point, we can just look at a Pew poll from a couple of years ago that you know, Pew Research did a study and they inquired amongst Jewish Israelis and they asked them, how you know do, do you support ethnically cleansing the country they didn't use that word but they said would you like to remove the arabs from the country and 49 percent wow. of israeli jews said yes so the, it's true that up until you know these last couple of years we haven't seen a mass uh people giving their votes to the party that says i'm going to carry that out but even you know obviously that sentiment is not just on the hearts, but on the lips of many Jewish Israelis, up to half. And these are the people who are willing to tell. Uh, I'm assuming that there were some people who felt that way, but weren't willing to openly admit it. In any case, we now have a situation where there's a party that has, you know, 14 seats in the 120 seat Knesset. So over a 10th of the seats in the Knesset, um yeah it's and and like i said the second largest party in the government it's absolutely incredible but i i don't think it's going to make a single difference not to the uh administration officials in the united states and not even to the leaders of the jewish community who are going to continue to support all you know the the settlement the, col the colonial project here so within the past uh, i would say less than two years now several uh, human rights organizations, uh, 
Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, and, and, and so on, they have labeled Israel as an apartheid state. I mean, what's the reaction within the country when you get to this level that now not only international human rights organizations and the United Nations rapporteur, but also Israeli human rights organizations are saying that we are an apartheid state, including, by the way, which I should, I'm sure you know that the former attorney general wrote a, a, an op-ed saying, and now I realize that my country is an apartheid. Is this making any difference? Or it's just like, again, I go back to the denial or, or a knee-jerk reaction that they that you hear it sometimes, oh, everybody hates us, you know, that's, mm. that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it's, it's exactly as you say, there is uh, an incredibly well-oiled machine, and it's already been, you know, drummed into people from day one. So I'll just give you a couple quick examples to understand, you know, we have uh, just now because of the World Cup, so an, an Israeli uh, team of journalists went to film there and they were so shocked that people didn't want to speak to them. And of course, as soon as, you know, he, he experiences, he interpreted this as, as anti-Semitism. You know, it's, it's, and this is, uh, this is allegedly an intelligent person who makes this, who comes to this conclusion. Um, and, and to me, it's really symptomatic of the fact that, how Israelis have become, and I hate to use this word because it's often used as, you know, kind of like to, as a, a smear against the left, but they've become such snowflakes. Like here we have the same week, uh, an Israeli soldier decked out in, you know, the most modern gear in Halil, in Hebron. And he's dancing with a group of American tourists. And then just upon here, seeing a group of, you know, Israelis who are critical of the situation or the apartheid reality of Hebron, he freaked out and then started beating up these, uh, by all counts, religious Israeli Jews who have also come to the conclusion, like the attorney general, you mentioned that this is an apartheid state and it's, you know, a vile situation that they can't can't announce, you know, and and so here they just, just upon hearing a civilian person cracking through this facade of that I'm dancing, I'm here wearing a soldier's uniform and I'm policing Hebron, but there's these Jews who are visiting me from some other country and they support the regime. So I'm now not going to be a, a, an important a soldier, I'm going to be dancing. And then as soon as someone ruins my high by remembering like, this is disgusting, that's what, you know, incited, oh, I'm going to beat you leftists, I'm going to kick the hell out of you. And this is all filmed by Isa Amron, you know, in Khalil. But I just, I what I found was so interesting was that he felt so triggered by people not sharing his view that, you know, Jewish supremacy must rule the country, like that, that he was so triggered by that, that he wasn't secure enough in his own supremacist regime, that even just like a pinprick of it, you know, shattered his reality and got him so enraged. So it's really emblematic of what Israelis are, what, what their media situation is. Don't forget, it's the only country that where, you know, Hebrew media is, is, is what's consumed. So it's not that there's any other outside media source to compete. You know, all, all, almost all of the news sources here are nationalist 
news sources. You know, and there's one liberal news source and no socialist news sources here. So in any case, I, I'm not excusing it, but it's depressingly uh, obvious that most Israelis are in a bubble in which they can't even, they're not even open to the concept of, I mean, but as I said, of course, for Palestinians, it's going to be horrible in the coming years. But, uh, you know, I've seen many of my Israeli Jewish friends leave over the years, uh, you know, on the left side of the spectrum. And I know that in the coming years, it's, it's, it's just going to accelerate. People don't want to raise their kids in the society anymore and they leave. And of course, that leaves fewer Israelis behind. Palestinians, most of the ones I know are sticking it out. They're like, whatever, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've seen other regimes come and go and we're going to hold to our land, but it's, it's going to be a very, very, very difficult time. No question in the coming years. David Sheehan, thank you for educating us and thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. That's the voice and the face of David Sheen, Israeli investigative journalist talking about the rise and the uh, embracing and the acceptance of a right-wing extremist, basically terrorist organization, the Kahanist uh, movement, which is not only being embraced by uh, Israelis, but uh, being part of the mainstream political movement. It seems like uh, the Israelis have a... Uh, are facing the the reality that we've been talking about for some some time that you know the extremist right wing uh, terrorists are kind of part of the government. Well, you know, uh, Israel likes and it's surrogates right here. They like to talk about normalization, normalization with the Arab countries, but really this is normalization with a terror group. This is what Israel is undergoing now that there is a major acceptance before they were shunned, you know, after they right. kicked out Meir Kahana from the Israeli Knesset uh, or parliament. Now, of course, there are at least uh, half a dozen of them serving in, in the parliament. And then uh, they're going to now be appointed to important ministerial positions because Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, wants to win, and he did win. Uh, he formed a coalition with them, so he's going to be for sure named the prime minister. And uh, and 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 so instead of kind of rejection, the uh, I don't say that's everyone, but a vast majority of the Israeli public. Basically, they're saying, why not? I mean, you know, they they are like us. Uh, uh, many of us don't want to see Palestinians or they want to now they accept the fact, you know, maybe we should be out outwardly frank about saying we want to ethnic cleanse the Palestinians. Uh, the, the Kahanists, they say population transfers. They don't use the word ethnic cleansing, but they say population Transfers. I mean, this is their kind of uh, clean word for using ethnic cleansing. Yeah, but uh, let's be clear, Jamal, the Kahan, Kahanist movement has been labeled by the U.S. government as a terrorist organization. You have right-wing extremist terrorists who are not just part of Israeli society, but being woven into the fabric of its government in a way that they don't hide anymore. They're out there. They're public. They're supporting Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu cultivated these relationships in order to get back uh, in the prime minister role. And we see Israelis kind of 
spreading and being upset that they're not accepted, yet here you have a society that embraces this this really extremist ideology. Well, well my question to you, Jas, since the Kahanist uh, movement has been labeled as a terror group, and by the way, they were also labeled as a terror group in Israel itself before, what will the Biden administration do when Ben Gavir decides to come to New York or Washington, D.C. Or, or, or Los Angeles since he's part of a terror group? I have an easy answer for you, Jamal. The Biden administration will do absolutely nothing about it, and he will be welcomed to the United States and feted. And, uh, you know, I, I know what the Biden administration will do. They will put out whatever press release to be mildly critical of the movement but they're going to they're going to let him into this country they're going to let him travel freely and they're going to uh you know they're going to hide their embrace of the of this apartheid state and and its leaders so i i don't think that the biden administration and the state department will do anything surprising here you are probably on the money and sadly i should say that you're on the money, and, and, and I can see now from the tone how they distance themselves. You know how the, these steps go? Just first thing they say, Israel is a sovereign country. We don't interfere, we don't want to, we don't want to interfere in, in, in their politics, even though the United States interferes in every other country's politics. But they'll say they're sovereign. We don't, you know, interfere. And, and yes, and they'll bury their heads in the sand. Um, with the exception of few courageous congresswomen and congressmen who might say something, but uh, yeah, they're not going to do anything. Uh, well, about but it. but here's the thing, Jamal. Why would we expect this country and the Biden administration to do anything when you have a former president of the United States hosting extremists, white supremacists, calling for the end of the Constitution? You know, still almost two years after the attempted coup d'etat in the United States is still running freely without any accountability. So, I mean, in some sense, you know, who are yes. we to lecture? That's what they're going to say. Who are we to lecture? We have a, we have our own anti-Semites and racists and Islamophobes to and homophobes to deal with right. right here in this country. That's exactly right, Jamal. But the point being is that the United States likes to hold itself out as being this uh, protector of democracy, yet they're supporting this kind of uh, terrorist uh, government. There's no other way of putting it, a Kahanist government. It's a Kahanist government in the apartheid state. They actively call for ethnic cleansing of, uh, of Palestinians. And and we want our listeners and viewers to know they're just not saying Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza need to be removed. They're saying that Palestinians in 1948, who are allegedly Israeli citizens, more, uh, need- more than this. Just if our, when, of course, our listeners, if they pay attention to the interview with David Sheen, they also have their sights on expanding Israel beyond its current borders all the way into Iran, as far as Iran uh, taking over right. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. That's that's their grand vision of a greater Israel. I mean, I mean, well, he he said that bluntly. That this is this is their long term vision. Yeah, but and I want to remind our listeners and viewers that one of 
one of Benjamin Netanyahu's campaign promises is to uh, annex the illegal colonial settlements in in the West Bank. I mean, right. 800,000. He's going to legally annex them into the apartheid state. So let's see what the U.S. government... I don't know why I keep mocking it, Jamal. I know exactly what the U.S. government's going to do. They're not going to do anything. And uh, the is this will be kind of the transition to our next uh, segment. It's like, so the apartheid state is embracing this right-wing extremism. They continue to oppress and occupy Palestinian land. They continue to target and kill Palestinians. Many, and it's just in this last week, I don't know how many Palestinians... Kill journalists. Kill journalists. Extrajudicial killing of a Palestinian civilian. Right. Just, Just within the past 48 hours. Just in 48 hours. And then they go and they travel internationally to Arab countries and they're surprised that they're not loved by people in in the street and by everyday arabs uh, i think uh, i think they drank their own husbara and they drank their <laughs> own uh, the uh, uh, they drank also uh, uh, jared kushner uh, Abraham Accords. They believe that uh, you know, few governments signed this uh, these accords with Israel, that they are a representation of their own, their people. And you and I know that this wasn't a grassroots movement. The the uh, ruler of the UAE did not uh, you know consult the population whether that whether he should sign a peace a peace accord with with the apartheid regime so uh yeah they they are in 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 a shock you know they uh, uh they send their journalists and uh there are i mean i don't have to tell this to our listeners they're smarter than this and viewers but uh um there's so many interviews and videos that you can see on the internet and uh, oh, you can see they're not great. only arab fans i should say you got british fans and uh, fans uh, from mexico and fans from argentina and brazil and wherever and they're trying their best to interview them you know have a uh, few israeli reporters and <laughs> they're met with utter rejection when when the person who gets pulled aside to be interviewed, and when they say that they are from Israel, they either walk away or they say "Viva Palestina" or "Long live Palestine" or you know, the, you know, we don't talk to Israelis, and uh, and they're shocked. They're shocked. I've, I've, yeah, I've like I've it's... seen so many examples of this. It's not like one or two or isolated, uh, you know, an isolated instance. And uh, and then they write about it and they say, you know, uh, we're really surprised. Uh, and they call it hate, which is not hate. They hate the apartheid system that you have created. They hate the images and 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 and, and the sight of your soldiers destroying Palestinian homes. They hate the sight of colonial settlers attacking Palestinian women. They hate the sight of your soldiers killing journalists, children medics well i think you put it really well jamal they drank their own husbara kool-aid and somehow for these israeli journalists to somehow be surprised that they have 
faced and are uh, facing the people in the Arab world, the people on the ground, the population from all, and it's just not Arabs, as you said, from people from all over the world coming to the World Cup, basically calling out Israeli apartheid and aggression and, and not normalizing it, that they're surprised by this means that they are in denial. They they drank their own Kool-Aid. And I, and I will say, you know, it's such a massive delusion on the part of Israeli journalists to be surprised by this. And just to remind our listeners and viewers, the Abraham Accords were signed by three despotic rulers, right? Like, so what is it? Bahrain, Morocco, and what? UAE are the three countries who signed the uh, the Abraham Accords. There's 19 or 20 Arab countries. Uh, there's the greater world, uh, all of whom are condemning you know, the apartheid practices, condemning, you know, the fact that terrorists are running the the apartheid state right now, and they're surprised. I have to tell you, Jamal, after I read that New York Times article about it, I I was, I just had this grin, you know, uh, from ear to ear thinking about, yeah, welcome to the world. You want to be accepted in the world community, and this is what this is where it's going to look like. If, and the other if, thing, Jess, is that it's not a just only a rejection of Israel and the apartheid, but also a show of solidarity with yes. with Palestine, with the Palestinians. I mean, we've seen people from Tunisia, from Morocco, that this uh, this young um, man running into the playground right, with a Palestinian the flag guy. and yeah, doing cartwheels, yeah. uh, and yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you have the largest flags uh, during the match. Uh, but, uh, when Wales was playing, uh, and and you know every single game, you there is a show of solidarity, and include including from the athlete themselves. I mean, those are right. big big stars who were either wearing the Palestinian flag on their arm, you know, an armband, or showing saying something about Palestine. Yeah, yeah. And so that show of support, which is. I have to say, heartwarming that the, yeah, yeah. The, the Arab masses and the international community have not forgotten uh, so, about Palestine, made sure that it was present during, yes. during and Jamal, FIFA. Jamal, you know what the Hasbaras, the Israeli, one Israeli journalist said to dismiss this international solidarity with Palestinians and his his kind of analysis? He said, well, we just these are all Palestinians in the diaspora. <laughs> that was his answer. You know, let me tell you something. There is a strict rule, including, I have to say, in order to host FIFA, you have you, you have to allow a certain number of um, from different countries, including, and this is 4,000 Israelis who applied for access to the World Cup. So Qatar approved 4,000 Israelis. And so they have to, and, and, and remember one thing, they give preferential treatment to countries with teams that are yes. going to be playing. So like, you know, you, all the English fans, because England qualified, the French fans, the, the, the people from Spain and so forth. Palestine doesn't even have a team play, playing there. So if, you, if I were going to guess, if I were going to guess, there probably were less than, 2% or 3% of the attendees oh, 
but who, what, who were there that were Palestinians. I mean, yeah, but such a ridiculous kind of analysis. No, no, I you mean, could tell from the people, uh, you know, their accents and the way they, the, the way they dressed and the way they talked, uh, whether they are Tunisians, whether they are Moroccan, whether they are from Saudi Arabia, by the way, Saudi Arabian fans, whether they are from the Gulf, from Qatar itself, or whether they are Brits. You know, a recent interview by an Israeli uh, a media outlet was talking af- uh, to to fans after Britain won the match yesterday, and uh, the fans said, "Long live, you know, Viva Palestine!" <laughs> and the guy started like walking away with the microphone. I mean, this is a fan from England. You cannot tell me that uh, he was Palestinian. They're trying, you know, of course, to. I said they either trying to dismiss it, and which, by the way, that's something very important because if people right here in this country they watch the games, they're they're aired on uh, Fox, uh, Fox Sports, Sports. yeah, Sports, Sports Network. They never pan to these. They don't show you the support. By the way, this is you see it on different networks. Even you see it on BBC. You see it. You see it on TV Sank. Of course, you see it on Al Jazeera when they pan out to the. Um, to the stands and you see right. all the support and the flags and whatever they try to avoid these scenes right here yeah. in the United States. So most people don't, don't see it. Yeah. And I, I, and I think, you know, Jamal, we have to give credit where credit is due with all of the international criticism leveled at the Qataris and at FIFA leadership for all of the, you know, uh, corruption and difficulties and and things that they go go through and went through, which is not unique to Qatar. And any this is true for any host country, by the way. But I have to say, and and I'll, just as another preface, I've been to Qatar. I don't know ten times in the last maybe three or four years. So I saw all of the massive construction that was going on. I saw the throngs of workers who were, you know, bust in on a daily basis to build these various venues. I I feel like we have to give credit where credit is due. So far, so far, you, you know, the, the Qatari uh, World Cup uh, has been pretty darn successful. The games have been really exciting and great, and the fans have been great. Um, and the hospitality. I mean, fantastic. people talk about the hospitality that they've received there. They, they've never received in any any other country. I mean, they went out of their way. And you know what about this criticism? Again, you know, we started talking about the hypocrisy here when it comes to the Israeli public and so forth, but also the hypocrisy from the countries such as Germany to lecture Qatar on human rights when yeah. it should be the last country on earth to lecture anyone on on human on human rights and their treatment of migrant workers and their history with the holocaust and and they're trying to kind of uh, just taint the sport itself by um, you know i mean and we know i mean you and i and i think a lot of people around the world uh, stand for human rights and the LGBTQ community rights and, and other people, but it, it's not Germany is not the country to be lecturing about no, that. No, and the reality is, and again, knock on wood, so far this has been a tremendous success that the Qataris have managed to pull this off. It's a very, very small country, uh, and they've managed to bring in a million people to watch the World Cup 
It's been a tremendous success so far. Let's hope it stays that way. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's part of uh, it's part of the racism that we have, you know, from the European side of things. I mean, we we didn't hear these criticisms coming from Africa, from Central and South America, and from from other countries. We heard it mostly from European countries, and of you know, of course, our and and I should remind people that Germany was quick to exit. Germany was <laughs> the world champion right. uh, four years ago, and they were talking about if we won, like the, oh, th- that's again the, the arrogance, we will not celebrate in Qatar. We will not celebrate. Well, they celebrated a quick bye exit. Bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. And, and several other countries, there were surprises. But uh, for me, the big surprise, and should, I shouldn't say big surprise because they have very... Uh, excellent players. Morocco, man, they're playing tomorrow against Spain. That's going to be a good match. And that's going to be a good match. And, and, and the fact that they've made it this far. And, of course, uh, other major disappointments that uh, that we've seen. Uh, uh, we've seen, of course, uh, an exit, quick exit for the United States. And I made this joke in, in, on, I think, on Facebook. And people didn't like it a little bit. And I said... Uh, in, in that this was the fastest time that the United States left the Middle East in, <laughs> in less than two weeks. Uh, but yeah, it, the military should the military and the politicians should take their cue from the. It was it was a quick ex- exit. But Canada listen, a quick exit. Yeah, Australia teams, a quick exit. But Jamal, the U.S. team is not that good. I mean, I was glad they made it to the round of 16 to the to the quarterfinals that's fine you know they but you know they only scored what two goals in four matches i mean well that's know? that's kind of again uh, the united states has probably the best best athletes around around the world in basketball in american football etc uh, unfortunately yeah, we still don't invest a lot in in the largest uh, sport on earth, which is uh, football or what we call it here, soccer. Uh, to to I mean, the women's team won the world championship twice. And, yeah, and the men's, uh, you know, they're mediocre. That's that's yeah. that, that's about the bottom line. I mean, yeah, their offense wasn't that impressive. Not that we're going to do a sports analysis here, but they were just. I would say the U.S. team is mediocre. When you see how well the Netherlands and the U.K. teams are, the way they France, play, Japan, France, awesome. Japan. Yeah, I mean these Morocco. You know these are awesome teams with really great players. So yeah, whatever and. Uh, you know, bye-bye Israeli journalists. I know it's really hard for you all to kind of be in Qatar right now and not be warmly embraced, but uh, welcome to the world. That's what I got to say to them. Welcome to the world. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We will talk to you next week. Go to our website, uh, arabtalkradio.com to download the latest episodes. We'll see you next week.